Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it's hard to believe we've been having weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals has links to purchase the source material behind our adapted film discussions. Your purchases there help support the show at no extra cost. For the entirety of Season 11, we featured films directed by women. The only exceptions were some of our member bonus episodes. We talked about the lure for our horror debuts series, which is a very loose adaptation of The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Definitely miles from the Disney versions. <laughs> for our 10-year anniversary series, we covered We Need to Talk About Kevin, taken from the Lionel Shriver novel. Man, that was brilliant. And horrifying. Yeah. The Journalist series included Merrily We Go to Hell and The Weight of Water, adapted from Anita Shreve's bestseller. We filled some gaps in previous series with member bonus episodes on adaptations like Malcolm X, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House, Cactus Flower, Wild at Heart, Life Force, and The Blues Brothers. Our John Hurd series looked at a trio of adaptations, Chilly Scenes of Winter from the novel by Ann Beatty, Awakenings based on Oliver Sacks' nonfiction book, and Rambling Rose adapted from the Calder Willingham novel. Two films in our coming-of-age debut series were adapted from books, The Virgin Suicides from Jeffrey Eugenides and The Diary of a Teenage Girl, Phoebe Gluckner's graphic novel. We had Queen of Cotway for our sports series based on Tim Crothers' nonfiction book. And Clueless kicked off our 90s comedy series, loosely adapted from Jane Austen's Emma. It totally took place in the 90s, though. <laughs> Find all of these books and more adaptations on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Slums of Beverly Hills is over. Take it from Vivian. The biggest problem in the country isn't money or drugs. It's breasts. Alan Arkin, Marissa Tomei, and Natasha Leone in a film about having the right zip code. It's not normal to move every three months. It's normal in some cultures. Nomads, they move. Even if everything else is wrong. Vivian, I didn't know you had a mustache. Oh my God, our sister is a hermaphrodite. The whole family is sick. We're freaks. Female problems. <laughs> Slums of Beverly Hills. Remember, never judge a girl by her address. Slums of Beverly Hills, Andy. Now this is a coming-of-age movie. Is it, though? (laughs) Why are you so cantankerous today? Oh, my God. (laughs) I think you're just, you're not pushing my buttons. I think you're sitting on it. (laughs) Okay, fine. What do, what would you call it? No, it is a coming of age film. I just <laughs> I'm giving you grief, but yes, this is a coming of age film. Welcome to our coming of age debuts series. This is Tamara Jenkins' debut feature film. Are you a Jenkins a Jenkinsite? Is it possible to be a Jenkhead? <laughs> <laughs> a Jenkhead? <laughs> She's a delightful person. She just hasn't made very much stuff, and so I don't uh, actually know of. Um, I haven't seen anything else that she's done. Have you? Did you see Private Private Lives? I missed Private Life. Uh, that was 2018. Um, and Savages. Uh, P- this, Pete. Yeah. I worked on the Savages. Of course, I've seen the Savages. Oh, for crying out loud, you did. Yes. Yes. Now you need to watch it so you don't uh, embarrass yourself bringing it up around me again. I am. I- <laughs> Let me just add. Am, I have to ask myself. I need to actually hear it. Am I embarrassed right now? <laughs> Let me tell you, the Savage, uh, the Savages is a fantastic film. Uh, I mean, she was nominated for uh, you know best original screenplay for that. Yeah. So uh, absolutely fantastic film. Um, I only worked on the the Phoenix portion of the film, um, which is a very small portion of it. Mostly, it's set in New York, but it's a. I, I think it's just a. Fantastic genius film, and um, did you meet? Did you meet Hoffman? You know, I didn't get to meet him, um, mm. but um, he was he was near. <laughs> <Does that laughs> you were count? you were Hoffman adjacent. <laughs> this was a wasn't this one? This was a big one for Laura Linney, right? Didn't she get nominated for this one? This was like a, she, she did, a yeah, big movie, yeah. 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 So, and regardless, um, I, I'm fond of Tamara Jenkins. Uh, I think that what she did here, what she did with that film, is great. And I, I don't even know how I missed Private Life. Like, I, I just think that that film came out, and somehow I don't remember even hearing about it. So now I definitely need to add that to my watch list and check it out. So, uh, yeah, she's a filmmaker who, uh, interestingly, has just done very few films. And I don't know if she's uh, keeping herself busy with commercials 
I'm not, I'm not really sure. Sure. One, one thing that she does say after taking 11 years between the savages and private life, she did say, um, in regards to female directors that it's, uh, not producing as often as their male counterparts. She says it's systemic. It's got to be systemic. There is something in the water. So clearly she has had a more difficult time getting to a place where she could make more stuff. That is, uh, that's actually, I mean, it's, it's such a bummer because she's, she, I, I really like the way she talks about film, the way she talks about this film in particular, the, not Savages, but the one we're talking about today. Uh, I, I did spend an hour with her in a, in a, um, uh, recent viewing Q and A that I thought was just, uh, I love the way she approaches the, the way she thinks about film. And, and it, it did. It made me want to go see even the one you worked on. Um, because I thought, <laughs> I thought, um, you know, she's a compelling um, contributor and filmmaker, and I just I, it frustrates me that there isn't isn't more stuff out there for her. You're a fan of um, Nick Hornby, right? His novels, High Fidelity about a boy, Fever Pitch, yeah, Juliet Naked. I am. I just feel like I'm being walked into something right now. No, 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 no. She. I'm just curious because she was one of the the writers who. Um, co-adapted the screenplay for Juliet Naked, which okay. I really, I really enjoyed that book. I just, I have not yet uh, seen the movie. I was a little nervous about it and um, wasn't sure if it was any good, but um, I, and I, I, because of that, I didn't even realize that she was one of the um, writers who had worked on the adaptation. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yes. So that's what we're talking about today. Yes. Sums of Beverly Hills is rated R. Um, should be fairly obvious when you watch the film. There are strong sexual situations, nudity, language, drug content, and dancing with a vibrator. Let's throw that <laughs> in there. <laughs> Which is spinoff show coming up on NBC. Gong, gong, gong. <laughs> Hey, want to watch this movie and help us out? Well, you can. If you see the Apple or Amazon link to the movie in the show notes, just click on it. It will take you right to their site and you can rent or buy the movie. When you do this, they actually give us a little bit. A little chunk of change comes our way. So we would really appreciate it. And then you get to see the movie and listen to the sh- the rest of the show. Everybody wins. Even Tamara Jenkins. The only one that doesn't is the dead cat in the oven. <laughs> Andy, if there is one <laughs> signature, I don't know, uh, signature token from this movie, signature, what would you call it, a gadget, something that would identify <laughs> this movie if you were to put it on a shirt or a mug or a pillow, uh, what, what would what would it be? <laughs> oh, Pete. Speaking of walking you into something, it's a dead cat, Andy. That's right. Slums of Beverly Hills will at some point be represented on our merch store, truestory.fm slash TNR merch. And who knows what it's going to be when we actually get to it, but I'm pretty excited about it. And you can get shirts, stickers, mugs, mass pillows, and more with everything we're coming up with as we come up with them, which is a kind of a roller coaster of a pace. Sometimes not a lot of new stuff sometimes all the new stuff so you just got to check uh, often truestory.fm slash tnr merch hey we would love to feature your own audio review as a part of this show or any of our future shows just send your 30 second audio review to reviews at truestory.fm as soon as you watch the movie and we just might showcase your voice on the show you got to get them in quick though we do record about two weeks in advance 
So again, send it to reviews at truestory.fm. And if you want to know where we where to find it, Pete, where do they find what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks? Oh, what a great question, Andy. Such a great question. Letterboxd.com slash the next reel. That is our Letterboxd HQ page. Now on that page, we have uh, lists of all the movies that are coming up uh, for our seasons across all of our shows. Uh, you can keep up with our reviews and uh, notes and links and stories and all the great things you can do over on Letterboxd. And uh, while you're there, if you fall in love with it uh, like we have, you can upgrade from your Normo edition of your Letterboxd account to a pro or patron membership with a discount code NEXTREEL at checkout or just visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd and you'll get 20% off and that 20% off counts for renewals as well. And just like Letterboxd, where you can sign up to become uh, kind of a member of their site, right? You get that uh, discount. We also have a membership with our show. If you sign up for uh, membership with us, uh, you you can sign up as either month to month or on an annual rate. And you get all sorts of fantastic things, including all sorts of bonus episodes that the regular listener does not get to hear. That's right. One of them involves uh, you just listening to a raft of Andy cheating at Flickchart re-ranking over and over incessant, rampant cheating, thumb on the scale, cheating at our Flickchart re-ranking. That, that is a, I mean, if you show up for nothing else at the next reel you have to show up for that it is reputation defining podcasting there we also have retakes at the end of every series that we do on the next reel we do a special bonus uh, member episode where we talk about the whole set of movies that we've just talked about uh we just uh, posted our john hurd retake episode as you're listening to this john hurd is uh, what members are listening to so head over to truestory.fm slash tnr membership to learn more about those membership tiers as andy said $5 a month or $55 a year. That's right. You didn't say anything about the rampant cheating comment. Uh, uh, that's because it's full of it. I, I fully admit it. I'm, I, I cheat like no one's business. Everybody should tune in to hear me cheat. Wow. Wow. Didn't expect you to lean into it quite so hard. When God made me to be an ice cold meadow, why are you always pressed about my life? Talking with your friend and me's about me saying... Hey, you know, there's a couple of things that we know, like we're both seasoned podcasters. And we're both geeks. Hey, we're both dads of amazing daughters. We're both Gen X. But there is some things we don't know. Like what? Well, like what each episode of our new show is going to be about. How can we not know that? We're making the show. Yeah, but here's the thing. You're going to bring five things to talk about, and so am I. But we won't know what the other host is bringing. So it could be anything. Uh, a new story about a Marvel show. Uh, a cool toy that's coming out. Uh, play we just saw even a weird thing from a drawer and it'll be a surprise for us and for our audience and what are we calling this show oh that's the part we do know it's called 10 random things you know throwing in this random element the show could go off the rails really fast oh yes i i hope it does and we're also going to do it live wait what yeah that's right 10 random things will be streamed live on wednesdays at 5 p.m arizona time do you have any big questions about this movie, Slums of Beverly Hills? You know, uh, this, I mean, okay, coming of age uh, debuts. Well, I mean, debuts was a key part of this. This is first films. 
and this is Tamara Jenkins' first film, um, developed in part by the uh, in part slash through the Sundance Institute. So uh, you know those that's always. Um, uh, you know, a good sign when you see a film that's got that credit at the end that, uh, you know, it kind of had that extra push to, um, you know, get uh, get some other people through Sundance kind of helping uh, Tamara kind of get it put together and get it out into the world. Uh, probably why Redford's name is uh, attached on it as well. And, you know, I, I think as a debut... I think that there's, you know, there, there's something that feels like that write what you know sort of thing. And this feels, I think, very honest. And these characters feel incredibly lived in to me. And I, I never saw anything about Tamara Jenkins kind of like putting parts of her own life into this. But it does feel like a, a world that she just feels comfortable telling, talking about. And so I, I don't know. I just I saw this in the theaters when it came out. Uh, back in 98 and uh, just I just instantly uh, was just connected with it this is one of those movies that's really great to see in a movie theater because uh, the some of the the laughs in it just you know you see a comedy in a theater and just all of a sudden everybody's cracking up at something and it just really um, amplifies it so um, yeah I have fond memories of this and uh, I'm glad that we're getting a chance to talk about it on the show it, so it is uh, what she calls semi-autobiographical. And to hear her talk about it, it's actually really interesting. She says, yes, we did. We absolutely, my family, I was the only woman or the only female in this uh, in this you know, family of all uh, males. And like this story is very much hers. Uh, her dad wandering around Beverly Hills trying to stay in the school district. And she said the difference, what is the semi part of autobiographical? She says, um, well, in real life, it was grimmer. Like there, it wasn't always uh, really very happy. It was pretty grim. She said it, she she has some interesting little sides. She says, um, you know, the one thing I remember about my dad that we didn't really put in the movie was that he had an incredible memory for phone numbers, which seems so antiquated. But we would drive like we would get in the car and drive around the periphery of Beverly Hills, and he would say it to any any sign that had a for rent uh, or, or, you know, room available or, or apartment available, he could remember and commit that phone number to memory so fast um, that, you know, he would get back to a to the diner where we would sit down and eat. And it would be like he'd be able to go through like nine different uh, apartment complexes with, and remember all those phone numbers and make those calls. Uh, and so but to hear her talk about it, I mean, she describes so much of this movie as being hers. This is absolutely semi, according to her, autobiographical. And uh, and so you can very much look at Natasha Leone's part as as uh, an avatar for for her. And and I would also we'll put in the show notes um, this this post uh, conversation. This was I don't even remember who it was. The Slums of Beverly Hills post screening uh, nine ninety second Street Y did a screening and they got uh, Tamara Jenkins and Natasha Leone and uh, Tom Richmond, cinematographer, and Kevin Corrigan to sit down and and um, and do a, a talk on this whole thing. And that's where I got that. So hmm. Hmm. so interesting, right? Very interesting, very interesting, and and I guess that's why it felt that way to me. Yeah, uh, it just the characters, like everything about them, just seemed real, and that's something that I, I just firmly get a sense of when I watch this. Like the the siblings, the you know her and her two brothers, they all just seem like they're doing stuff that siblings would do, and it's just little things sometimes, like when they're sitting around watching a game show or things like that. It just 
it felt uh, authentic. And so I really connect with it. And then also when you get kind of that crazy relative, and in this particular case, you know, I guess it's, uh, you'd say it's Marissa Tomei's <laughs> uh, character, their, their cousin uh, who comes to stay with them after escaping from the clinic that she is, uh, she's getting treated at. And, uh, it, you know, and it, that becomes the key to Murray, uh, Alan Arkin's uh, father character, getting the money he needs from his brother in order to actually, you know, ca- have a place that's slightly better than, than what he, they're usually living in in yeah. Beverly Hills. So it was, um, I don't know. I, I the idea of, that relationship of cousins also and just, you know, other family and, and you have the one who's slightly off and I, I feel like everybody kind of has something similar. And so I just really enjoyed the relationships. And uh, this this to me is very much kind of a relationship story as we're following uh, Vivian, Natasha Lyonne's character, as she's she's hit this point where, you know, she's stacked now. She's suddenly stacked overnight, according to <laughs> her dad. Like her he's like, mother. where did you get those things? <laughs> and finally getting her her first bra, even though she clearly has needed it for quite a while. And um, but, you know, her in this place where she's having to suddenly deal with uh, kind of uh, crossing that line and becoming a woman and dealing with all of that sort of stuff. Do you, uh, did, what was, how was your perspective watching this movie as a father now? Well, I'll tell you, I actually started watching it with my daughter. Oh, <laughs> how long did that last? <laughs> well, she, she, she made it through most of it. She thought the, um, the vibrator scene was hilarious when they're dancing with it. Yeah. Um, and then she kind of got a little, I, I don't know, I assumed that she got bored, <laughs> you know, two thirds of the way in and just left suddenly. And I think that was, that was it for her. So I don't know if it's one that she wants to come back to or not, but um, I don't know. I, you know, kids these days, she was on her phone most of the time anyway. So <laughs> there were plenty of times I was like, oh my God, is she watching? And I'd look over and she was just on her phone, not even paying attention. So are you sure was she wasn't things. paying attention or she wasn't paying attention, quote, paying attention? Like, well, she maybe was been, paying attention, but didn't been. want you to know she was paying attention because daughters. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it was one of those things um you know, I was like, mm, okay, well, uh, maybe, maybe a little awkward to have been yeah. watching this one with my child. But I do think, in context of that, and in context of the growth that people have, and especially as a as a parent dealing with a daughter who is growing up and becoming a woman and dealing with those things, that it's uh, it actually is an interesting film to kind of um, look at in in the scope of the things that women. Uh, think about that their parents aren't necessarily aware of, you know, just like, are my breasts too big? I feel deformed. I feel ugly. I want a breast reduction, like all of that sort of stuff. Like there were so many interesting things that Vivian was going through that I think feel very authentic. And, um, you know, because, you know, people go through these changes and suddenly you're not who you were. And it's like, I want to be who I was. Like, what is this thing that I am now? I found that to be really um, kind of compelling in the in the way that Vivian was dealing with her 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 uh, uh, puberty. I think so, too. I, I it's one of the things I appreciate most about Alan Arkin's portrayal here. And, and I think part of it is because I remember so viscerally the day that I realized my daughter had outgrown childhood. And uh, it, it was it, it was a 
it wasn't a, oh, oh my gosh, slowly she's developing into a different person and she's, you know, her shape is changing and she has breasts and all this. It was like I was sitting at the table eating breakfast with my wife and my daughter came and stood next to me and was saying something about a book. And I looked over and realized, oh my God, she has breasts. Like all of a sudden, like she was, it was like she was my child the day before and now she's, uh, you know, an adult. And it happened so shockingly fast. The the only way I, I feel like I could get through it was just to to muscle through all the emotions that came around for me. The the fear, the like uncertainty, the I don't know what to do now. And I felt like Arkin really communicates that. Like he is just the the opening scene of him buying the bra is like he just has to has to to like talk through it and and say get it and use stacked like his like her mother like he has to talk about it in in some really cringy kind of ways Be, and then okay i'm going to take a walk <laughs> and then he leaves and and that felt very like authentic to me it felt authentic to to sort of my experience as a dad of a daughter trying to figure out like trying to to figure out how to be the guy that that the father that can be present in her learning who she is as an adult woman. And, um, and that is that not even close to being as scary as it is, I imagine, to actually be going through it yourself, but certainly is, is representative scary. Um, and to maintain that relationship, I think is, is hard. And I, I you know, this movie piles an awful lot on to Arkin as, you know, to to be that guy and also to deal with, you know, his own inner issues of family strife and class and and, you know, all the things he wants, not let alone like losing his business and and all of that stuff. But but that particular relationship between the two of them, I thought was pretty special. Well, and, it's you know, I think it, it comes out really well in the scene where his daughter, uh, I think it's just like, you know, a couple scenes later where she's wearing the halter top and yeah. he's like, where's your brassiere? Put your brassiere on. Yeah, right. And she's like, like you don't wear a brassiere with this. On. I don't care. Put it on. <laughs> yeah, I don't even All know right, what to fine. say right now, yeah. but I'm going to say, put it on. <laughs> I bought you a brassiere. You're going to wear a brassiere. <laughs> it's... Uh, just it was fantastic. Uh, it just really the way was. all of that played out, and yeah. and so I I love all of these elements, and just and even the way the family talks. And I you know I go back and forth. I'm like, well, you know, there was definitely a, more of a level of kind of that sort of communication in the 70s, uh, you know, where people were a little more crass and and you know would say like, yeah, she's stacked, my sister's stacked, you know, stuff like that. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, mm -hmm. has it changed that much? Siblings say things about each other sometimes that you're like, God. What are you talking about? You should not be saying those things about your sister or your brother. But it's like, God, they, you know, but this is, it's, it's a sibling thing also, I think, you know? Yes. Uh, and, and I, it makes me really curious the kinds of things that you talked about with your sister that you said about your sister and that she said about you. I want to be a fly on the wall of like <laughs> circa 1983, uh, right. between says, the two says, of you. Says the kid who has no siblings. Yeah, I'm exactly. Sorry. I have nothing. I have nothing to base this on. Everything I know about sibling communication, I learned in slums of Beverly Hills, Andy. This is all I've got. <laughs> oh, just sad. Just so sad. Uh, and, and Natasha Leone. Yeah, she's fantastic. Natasha Leone is, is great. I was just going to say, she's, she's one of those performers that, uh, like, I feel like this is where I first saw her. 
And, uh, and then she just kind of was all over the place. And I think she had been, in, she had been in other stuff since the, uh, kind of mid eighties with like heartburn. And then she was in Dennis the Menace. Everyone says, I love you. Oh, I guess everyone says, I love you. I remember her in that and Krippendorf's tribe. God, I saw all of these things. Now I'm like, oh, of course. Um, but then this is really where she was carrying a film. And then she popped up and stuff like she was in the uh, American Pie movies and the scary movie movies. And she you know, did a great job. In, but I'm a cheerleader. And she seemed to be really busy. Uh, and I mean, she's maintained a very busy schedule and stuff. But for whatever reason, like in my head, she really dropped off in the in the. I don't know, 2010s, I guess. Like, and it's just, I think she was in stuff that I just wasn't watching, mm-hmm. but she seemed to be somebody who just disappeared. Yeah. And I think it was just the types of films that she was doing. I think so too. And, and it was just a lot of TV and you don't watch TV. And then, you know, she did a whole lots bunch of, movies. of, she was, she's in lots movies. of movies too. Yeah, sure, sure, Every sure. Year. But, yeah, multiple. Um, but, uh, you know, then, you know, where did she, but much of her, uh, 2010s was Orange is the New Black, right? Like that was 2013 to 2019, 81 episodes of, and so that's like, I, and, and I did not watch Orange is the New Black at all. I, I came back around to, uh, Natasha for Russian Doll, which I absolutely adored. And, <laughs> second season, uh, drops on in April of this, uh, year. So it's coming back for another season. I'm, very, very excited about that. So, um, but I'm with you. I didn't see any, really any of those movies that she was doing. Um, it, it just felt like she, she did to use your word, disappeared, uh, for a long time. And so it, it's really exciting to go back and, and see just how much she was doing the whole time. And it, that the answer is a lot. Yeah. Really just hasn't stopped. I, I'm honestly, uh, like looking at the list of movies that she did, I, it really is just like she just stopped doing bigger movies, or I, I'm assuming, you know, probably started doing stuff that was a little more, um, you know, a little more kind of obscure indie sorts of stuff, um, right? In kind of the late late aughts, early 2010s, and then it's just only in you know popping into bigger things periodically, like when she played Tallulah Bankhead in the United States versus Billie Holiday, like those sorts of things, which is just like a once in a while. So yeah, really fun to see her and uh, uh, Eli Marienthal. In this movie, they went back and did together um, American Pie right after this. Uh, Marenthal played Stifler's brother yeah. uh, in American Pie with her. And I, I have a soft spot in my heart for that movie. Yeah, that's a, that'd be fun to revisit those. Um, he also was uh, Hogarth in, um, in Iron Giant. Hogarth yes, Hughes. that's right. That's right. Um, so that's, that's another one that, uh, you know, he's got that voice that I kind of recognize. And... Um, just uh, everybody's favorite, the Country Bears. Let's not forget that. <laughs> you, are you, I'm uh, sorry, who are you talking? <laughs> uh, what do you like, David Crumholtz? Is he a guy that you so enjoy? much, so much? I really do. I'm, I'm actually, I'm a, I am a crumbhead. Um, I think he's so funny and so like he has such a weird energy about himself that uh, you know, I, I 
didn't know anything about him until I started watching Numbers, which I watched a lot. I watched all of Numbers. I don't know why it became such a not even so much a guilty pleasure for me. I just thought I just found a real affinity for math and crime. <laughs> so, so I got real excited about that movie um, and, or that show. And so but but apart from that, it was the Santa Claus. Um, you know, he as the uh, what was his name? Bernard the Elf. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, I really liked him. Seeing him here as like an older teenager was so exciting. I'd, I'd actually forgotten uh, that he was even in this movie. And and as he stands in his underwear singing Guys and Dolls, you know, that's a that's a hero moment in this movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, he's he is very fun as the brother and the, the, the pothead. And I love it when he spends all their food money on his pot. And nobody really does anything about it. He's just like yeah. openly like, yeah, I'm just going to do it. And he's like light, having his little brother light his bong for him. Yeah. Get my <laughs> bong. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> so good. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, Santa Claus um, and uh, 10 Things I Hate About You. Yep. Um, weirdly, I usually think about him uh, as Goldstein and Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. Yeah. Uh, interesting role in that franchise but he's yeah. he's a fun actor i do enjoy seeing him as well and uh and then what about kevin corrigan as the as kind of the the nosy neighbor who they um meet in one of their places who kind of um appears periodically because he is the, the one selling the pot uh to crumholtz tj how can you like how could you possibly not like karen kevin corrigan like i i feel like he has so much weird charisma on screen in anybody that he does uh or that he plays that i i I just have an incredibly difficult time imagining not liking one of his performances i like everything he's done i feel like this is a movie that the two of us in particular need to watch and discuss it is called phoenix oregon Oregon. yeah (laughs) yeah andy what 2019 i hadn't even heard of it I hadn't even heard of it. Hadn't either. Yeah. Um, Those of you who are listening, uh, I am in Phoenix and Pete's in Oregon. So who, if you didn't know, but yeah, he's been around since the uh, late eighties working in movies. Um, Goodfellas. I remember seeing him in there. And then it's like two romance, random things living in oblivion. I loved him in that. Um, But I, I feel like he's a person I recognize his face so much from things, but I don't know if there's anything in particular that I think of as, oh, yeah, that's a Kevin Corrigan thing. It's not unstoppable. I don't even remember who he was in that. The train of that movie about the train that that can't be stopped. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) yes, yes. I've heard of that. Steve still gives me trouble about that. Um, Yeah. It is so. I I actually I'm, I think he uh, like he the, his top four on IMDb: True Romance, The Departed, Pineapple Express, and Unstoppable. Um, mm. But 167 credits between TV, podcast, voiceover, and film. Um, so he's all over the place. Really, really like Kevin Corgan. Busy, busy. Those are the kind of the the young folk. Um, uh, Marissa Tomei. I mean, she. Uh, what's your where do you stand with Tomei? Where do I stand anywhere she is? I'll stand with Tomei. I stand with Tomei. Is there a question? Should I not stand with Tomei? She's a serial abuser. Here's the question for you. What? What? 1992, she won the Oscar for My Cousin Vinny, um, beating out all the Brits 
right? Do you, I don't know if you recall this, but it was her yeah. against four Brits for best uh, actress in a supporting role. Um, she beat out Joan Plowright in Enchanted April, Judy Davis in Husbands and Wives, Miranda Richardson in Damage, Vanessa Redgrave in Howard's End. And people are like, oh, the Americans are just giving it to the American. The least, the least impressive of the movies. And that was kind of the, the, the talk at the time. Now, I've only seen three of those other four movies. I, I don't think I saw Enchanted April, or if I did, I can't remember. Um, but Marissa Tomei was great in My Cousin Vinny, and it was a big role. And I just remember that it seemed like she had to struggle, weirdly, after that uh, film came out to get uh, to, to be seen as a credible actress. And it was strange to me because she was really great in the movie. And, uh, you know, she was still in... I mean, she was still acting. She was in all sorts of stuff like Chaplin and Untamed Heart and The Paper and Only You Mm -hmm. and uh, just all sorts of movies. But I feel like it wasn't until around this period where she started getting into like these indie movies like Slums of Beverly Hills or Happy Accidents a couple years later uh, in the bedroom where she slowly started kind of becoming somebody that people went, oh, she actually can act. She is actually an interesting actress. And I think she is, it was an unfortunate thing for her where she had to kind of go through this situation where people uh, like she had to work up to being seen as somebody who was a credible actress very frustratingly, because I mean, you watch stuff like the wrestler and you're like, yeah, she's flipping fantastic. Of course she should be seen as somebody that people recognize because uh, she's a fantastic performer. So that's why I ask, because I think there was this period where people looked at her as as not serious. But I think that it's entirely she's she said, I'm going to prove it. And I think she has. OK, I, I think so, too. I want to go back to the to the Oscars, uh, the Brits getting the Oscar snub. And and I think huh, the the reason I'm I, I'm stuck on that is because I think sometimes she was the she she. Uh, there, there is a class discussion to be had here that you have four Brits going up against not just the American, but the American playing someone that that is easy to um, disdain performatively. Like it is somehow easy to play, uh, you know, uh, uh, someone with the the sort of that sort of class of of Jersey accent, the you know of of that sort of class system, and I think that is, uh, I, I think that part is uh, as as hard to play uh, as compellingly, convincingly as an actor as it is to play uh, someone in the House of Windsor, right? Like it is, it's just another part. But sometimes I think that the Oscars look at movies like like that and this was this might have been a rare gem of an opportunity to showcase somebody who plays a part that normally would be completely dismissed but is also as an actor a stretch like something that is hard to do well and and so i i actually i feel like i'd, I'd need to watch the movies again but i feel like that might be an, uh, a chance to look back and say hey oscar got it right is that possible the gift of hindsight. Oh, I, I think so, and I think it's. I think you have to look at it with that. You know, in 
it, it always seems like the gift of hindsight is the best way to look at that. Like, how do these things hold up over time? You know, and I think oftentimes you look back and, and you're like, wow, how did that be the thing that was so popular in the zeitgeist at the time that it won an Oscar? Because clearly you look at it now, it's like, why would they even consider that? But in this particular case, and again, I need to go back and revisit those movies as well to see. But uh, I, I think that, I mean, having rewatched My Cousin Vinny more frequently than any of those other any films. Any of the other movies, that should say something. I would not have even been able to tell you about those movies. Uh, like, it's I been mean, so long since I've even thought about them. But, uh, but uh, I mean, we're, but I mean, the movies are the movies. You know, they might be good. They might not be good. But, I mean, it's really the performances. And I, I, I just don't – I can't speak to, you know, how well did um, uh, Joan they, Plowright those, Joan Plowright yeah. do in that um, because, I mean, you know, I mean, Husbands and Wives, that was Judy Davis. She's always good, especially in those Woody Allen films. Miranda Richardson in Damage. I mean, that's that was a, um, you know, a powerful film about, uh, you know, relationships and cheating and everything. And Howard's End, of course, was great. Enchanted April, again, I just can't remember. But I, I, I'm curious, actually, to go back and look at these much more serious films and even Husbands and Wives in the realm of Woody Allen. I'm trying to remember, was that one of his more serious ones or was that a more comedic one? I just, I don't remember husbands and wives very well. Yeah, right. I can't remember. Right, right. Um, anyway. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting because Marissa Tomei just stands out so much as a performer. And when you see what she's doing in this film, like she's clearly having fun in this role of this cousin who's a little uh, kind of off and she's escaped this, uh, you know, uh, this institution where she's getting help for her her addictions and um, they're kind of taking care of her and uh, but she's you know she introduces Vivian to to a vibrator and and offers her a cocktail and you know she's she's kind of that older cousin who is getting the younger cousins into or introducing them I should say not getting them into trouble but introducing her younger female cousin to things that are you know as you get older are the things that you're going to, you know, have heard about. And so inevitably there's somebody in your life, in everybody's life who has heard of something that's introducing you to these things. And so in this case, it's her. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's really fun when she does introduce a Vivian to the vibrator. It's kind of showing her what it is and they're playing around. Like it becomes this, this joyful scene of dancing with this vibrator and this idea, kind of a jokey idea of sex. That is a great lead into the later scene when Vivian actually does use it for the first time and actually experiences what that is when she, you know, has the orgasm. And it's, I mean, the way that we see it, we're just, it's looking at her face, but it's like, it's, it's, yeah, it is very much that coming of age. This is a, a girl who is learning about what it means to become a woman. That is actually a, uh, so one, the dance sequence, the, the vibrator dance uh, sequence, I think is uh, delightful. Not the least of which, because of the way Natasha plays that part, like the way she uh, actually like gets into it and starts to dance to the point that she actually demonstrates some like serious, awesome move, like moves. She's <laughs> she's like really some great, great thrusting moves. Yeah. But the uh, the the punchline when dad walks in and Tomei is standing in the background singing, saying, turn the head, twist the head, twist the head. <laughs> 
<laughs> just she lays me. Cannot turn me. it off. Uh, just like right. it's faster and faster. Oh god, it's so good. And but the uh, interesting thing, she had uh, production had just shut down. Uh, this was one of the first scenes they did after uh, a shutdown because Natasha had been in a car accident, and she had uh, her entire chest was like completely like cut up up to her neck. And uh, uh, to hear Tamara talk about it, she says, yeah, you had this giant steering wheel cut in your chest uh, from hitting the steering wheel, this big curve, curve. And so that's why she's wearing what kind of looks like a modesty gown, nightgown, right? That it's very, very short, sort of a baby doll thing, but it goes all the way up to her neck because they were hiding the remnants of this car accident that she had just been in. So um, I, that was apparently an interesting headache they came off of. And then... Then they talked about uh, the orgasm scene and the way they talked about it. They said, oh, do you remember Natasha's orgasm day? Uh, which I thought, can you imagine writing that on the schedule? Natasha's orgasm day. Uh, that she had to figure out how to do that. And she said she, she the way she characterizes, she says, you know, I, I wasn't a virgin at the time, but had never been introduced to sex toys and didn't know like that was. This movie came with it some incredibly strange homework assignments, and uh, that ended up being one of them, like figuring out how this thing works and how does it work with me and how to portray that authentically on camera. And what are the tricks to being able to conjure that experience over and over and over and over again um, to, to a room get it right? people. In a room full of full of people, <laughs> um, so that was that was one I thought was very very interesting. the the other The other rehearsal task this got me thinking of is because they used a, a body double for all the breasts, and we need to talk about breasts, Sandy. Um, so this were this was not Natasha. She uh, has a, a wonderful position on. Um, uh, auditioning breasts. She said apparently it was it was Tamara and her that got to go through the process of of auditioning breasts, and people would come in and they would they would show the breasts, and then they would you know Tamara and and Natasha would have to say, does that look like an authentic double for your frame? And for looked like she said it was it was the strangest experience as women sitting at a table in a room figuring out how to appropriately objectify other women, because that's literally what we're doing, is looking at breasts and saying, are these breasts good for our movie? Are they good breasts or are they not good breasts? And uh, to say over and over and over, looking at breasts that could stand in authentically for Natasha's breasts uh, was um a uh, an interesting exercise the, I think this is like so many movies we talk about the ac- the act of making the movie is uh, almost as interesting as the the resultant movie itself because of breast auditions that's crazy the rehearsal was to go where because she did not have large breasts Natasha at the at the time she did she was she said I was 18 I was flat chested at the time and so I had to wear giant giant uh, silicone cutlets. <laughs> as my <laughs> stand-in press for every other scene. And she said that was her homework, was that, that Tamara actually remembered this. She said, I, I sent you out into the public because I wanted you to feel what it's like to have giant breasts and walk around and just go throughout your daily life to to figure out what because that it is it was a very, very strange experience for her. And again, objectifying and terrifying and all the things well and, and i mean yeah it's it, there's you know the extra weight 
you know, that they talk about like that mom was always complaining about her back pain and stuff like that. And, and it's, it's something that's really interesting that I, I only remember it being kind of talked about in this film and American Beauty as two films where the, the young teenager is actively looking into breast reduction because they're embarrassed by having large breasts. And it's, it's an interesting thing that isn't often talked about. And I think it's interesting in coming of age film like this, where you are looking at something like that, because, uh, you know, that is something that, uh, I don't know, I guess in society, it's just seemed like, you know, the bigger the breasts, the better. It's just such kind of a masculine view of everything with, with Playboy and things like that. And I think, when you look at it this way, I think there's a reality to this idea of, uh, you know, it's it's an embarrassing thing and I have to live with this. And and I think that this film actually portrays that transition for her of being horrified by it from the very beginning, saying I, I, I'm deformed to finally as she after she visits the plastic surgeon and she's kind of looking at the lines that they've drawn on her of like what we're going to change and everything to realizing this is what I have from mom. This is this is part of me. This is that mom part of me. And and she's come to accept it. And I think that's kind of that growth that we see in her of this. And that's why I think in this particular film, breasts become such an important element because it is about her growing into becoming who she is, will be for the rest of her life. Well, and and that I think is one of the things that the movie does so, so well is to to really capture the the fear and awkwardness that of the transformation of all the equipment. Right. And we have the the, um, you know, funny and awkward and terrifying sequence at at dinner when she gets her period and uh, Jessica Walter screaming that there's blood on her needle point. Blood is just screaming. <laughs> Jessica Walters is amazing always. always. Uh, but but it's such a, a funny and and just horrifying scene. And uh, be, because it really celebrates that this this equipment, this body that you've adjusted to for 15 years is not the same thing that it was yesterday. Today, it's a totally different thing. And you have to figure out like nobody gives you a manual and uh, or if they do, the manual changes dramatically, as we see in the movie, like that things are different than they were when Jessica Walters was a kid. And so um, like all of that, I think the the movie just looks straight in the face like it just has it, it has the awkward conversations and 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 it pushes through to, as you say, her acceptance. Like she has to go through that that weirdness in, tor- in order to get to that that acceptance. That this was one last story. I feel like I'm just repeating this entire uh, interview that I saw, but I thought this was so funny. Uh, one of the executives comes in and had a real problem with one how long the camera looked at the at the seat with the blood on it like it was just way too too long you need to shorten that and then there's a scene where she's going to the bathroom where Natasha's going to the bathroom she's peeing and then she wipes herself and the executive came in and said to Tamara said you, you we need to cut the pee cut the pee so it's just very awkward and I'm not the only one who thinks so we took a poll in the office and we all think the pee scene is too much it's just too much but in the screening, the vibrator dance got laughs. That tested well. So cut the pee, keep the vibrator. And she said, I, I swear, if they if they had their way, this would have been a song and dance movie with a vibrator in every single scene. Like, they, that's what they thought of it. <laughs> cut the pee, keep the vibrator. I thought that was very funny. 
Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, it, well, you know, it, when it comes to uh, films like this, uh, directed by someone like Tamara Jenkins, and you have Michael Nozick, Joe Picciarillo, Robert Redford, Stan Ludkowski as the four male producers, production executives, executive producers. <laughs> Yeah, you can see how like the 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 people involved might not be looking at the story the same way that the female director is looking at these sorts yeah, of things. Right, right. So that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's funny because like I I don't know I think that there's there are funny elements in those things that they're just they're also not seeing and it's just um, sometimes it's a you know these these uh, kind of when the producers have these sorts of notes it can it can make for frustra- frustrating moments within the movies but right 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 was the look interesting at all i think we're in a the the production design of the film first of all just that it is a it, it takes place in the time that it takes place but also i was struck by just how well the film captures the fringe of beverly hills did that strike you at all Oh, absolutely. No, it feels, um, yeah, I mean, it feels 70s. Like, I, I enjoyed kind of that 70s vibe that we had here. I did make a note of myself, and I'm tempted to start a letterbox list of movies that take place in Beverly Hills where the camera looks straight up as it passes palm trees. Because I feel like that is such a, an iconic and possibly overused <laughs> filmic trope when you're in Beverly yeah. Hills. Point the camera up as you drive down the road and you see the passing palm trees. That's how you know it's Beverly Hills. Uh, somebody needs a letterbox list of that. I don't know Beverly Hills well enough. Is that like Rodeo Drive? Is that the is that the sh- the shot? Uh, where is the looking up? I would uh, think that it's in any of the like Rodeo Drive, uh, like the areas where it's kind of the commercial areas. I would think that that's just the residential streets. Um, that's just I don't every it just, that's it, everywhere. It, yeah, it's just well, it's and you can say that. I mean, that's Arizona, but you do that in Arizona, and people are going to go, "Oh, where's where's that Beverly Hills?" It just feels like an iconic Beverly Hills thing. Um, regardless, it feels very, uh, very real, and these places feel um, perfect. You know, for that, as you're saying, that fringe area of you know, as the title is, slums of Beverly Hills. We are looking at the cheap apartments that are kind of on the edges, just as, you know, dad's always saying, we're just inside the, the city limits, uh, trying to keep his kids in the good schools. And I think that's a very funny way of kind of living this life of, of always finding the cheap places just so my kids can have a better schooling. And I think it also speaks to, you know, him as a parent trying to do well for his kids so that they can potentially be hopefully later in life, more successful, more like, perhaps uncle mickey than himself you know Mm -hmm. well i have real-time follow-up are you excited about this this is good oh are you did you find a letterbox list of films that no but i found the locations um the the location of the the super iconic one because the the street is narrow and uh the trees are well tended is Carmelita Avenue and North Hillcrest Road. Starting at that intersection, uh, it has all of the perfect pine trees or uh, palm trees, pine trees. <laughs> uh, North Canyon Drive and Parkway is another one that is narrow enough. A slightly wider street is Melrose Place. Uh, and I'm that sure. is a, another iconic one. The street is a little bit wider and so need a wider lens to capture it. Uh, but it looks like that Carmelita Avenue, Canyon Drive, 
and Melrose Place are the three super, super iconic. Carmelita Drive Way also crosses North Beverly Drive. And that's another that that whole area is apparently um, a big deal for looking up shots. Gotcha. There you go. Yeah. There you go. All right. Real time research pays off. Real time research pays off. And then it goes back to. What were you talking about? The family and Carl Reiner? Did you did you mention Mickey? You mentioned Mickey. Uh, well, I mentioned Uncle Mickey and just that idea. But yeah, Carl Reiner and Rita Moreno. Uh, it was very funny watching her in this after having just yeah. watched the new West Side Story. But yeah, uh, the two of them. Um, Murray is is uh, uh, well, Mickey is Murray's older brother and the one who is kind of funding him. And uh, I mean, they only have the one scene, uh, but it's uh, it's a fantastic one. That scene was extraordinary. And uh, because it I mean, it hit me right in the chest, that whole idea of um, not in front of the kids, not in front of the kids. And I think Arkin crushes that, that that just sort of like he he's so good at being humiliated. I think he has been his entire career just really owning his own crushed ego. And Reiner is such a big man in his body, like he's such a large guy. It, they were perfectly cast as brothers. And that sequence, I, I think it pays off so well at the end when the kids are all back in the car trying to help rebuild dad and wanting to go get a steak. And such a great um, scene. I, I mean, it was just just hit me right in the chest. I thought it was perfect. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then it, kind of that whole the build of that scene is fantastic too. As as Vivian <laughs> relives that moment of the story that Dad has always told about that moment where in his past where he stabs the employee in the leg uh, because he knows that the guy is stealing steaks, and of course he's just stabbing the steak in the leg. But <laughs> she actually does that to her uncle, and it's just like <laughs> that pays off so perfectly like the way that she's just so uh kind of uh trying to stop this situation from from going any further and that's the way that like her little brain reacts it was just a perfect moment and uh it just yeah it makes me i don't know i just uh, that that scene i just watched uh, i rewatched several times because it just plays so perfectly it, it really plays perfectly. She does such a great job. And I think he's just watching him limp off back to his private plane <laughs> or the the little plane uh, on the tarmac. I thought it was just beautiful. It was just uh, funny and, uh, you know, with just the right amount of heart. So I think it I think it plays. You know, one other thing that I just have to uh, just speaking of that, going back to that whole lived in thing that I brought up earlier. Yeah. The fact that Vivian and Rita have that like gibberish language that they speak to each other like that delights me to no end. Not only the fact that they speak that way and it's just a fun thing to kind of do as cousins do something crazy like that because it's just it's how people are. But the fact that we do kind of come back to that later when they're having the conversation in the bathroom and she's they're they're using it to speak that way because somebody else is also in the bathroom and they're kind of having their conversation, the serious conversation about kind of the fact that there was this kind of awful sexual moment that, you know, indiscretion that happens between Murray and his niece, Rita. And uh, and Vivian's kind of horrified by by what she saw. And they're kind of having this confrontation at the in this moment in the bathroom. And that I, I think that was I don't know for me. You've built this gibberish language into the script. 
And then as a smart screenwriter, you find a way to incorporate it later in a serious scene. And all of a sudden, you're you're doing a great job of kind of balancing some of that comedy and that drama and the tension. And uh, for me, that worked really well, especially as it kind of gets to the emotional uh, finale of that scene between the two of them. I'm really glad you brought that scene up because I think it, it it was it was perfect. I had the same thought as they're sitting there staring at each other, having this incredibly dramatic scene, but adding that little twist of the the callback to the the you know gibberish language um, was it, it was just perfectly toned to to lighten up just enough that the intensity of what they were actually talking about. And and the the swing there is that, like, you can overdo it. Like, you can make that choice and make it just, you know, uh, make it just a, a lampoon. And I, I don't think they did it. I think it, there was no sense that that I lost, ever lost any of the heart of of the scene that they were trying to get across. But it just added to the characters. And uh, it's such good payoff. Yeah, really was. You got anything else? You done? Strong stuff. Strong stuff. Uh, no, just, you know, great soundtrack. I, I, lots of great uh, 70s tunes kicking in throughout the movie. Um, and Rolf Kent's score to this, uh, I just really delighted. It, it was just kind of a fun romp of a score. Uh, yeah, he, you know, he, he's worked a lot with Alexander Payne and brings that kind of fun levity to uh, to his films as well. And uh, and obviously they're all kind of together because Alexander Payne ends up coming on and joining Tamara Jenkins, I believe he was one of the producers on The Savages. So fancy that. Yeah, there you go. All right. All right. Well, uh, we will be right back. But first, the credits. You try, but you could never dim my light. Please know I'm a touchable girl. I'll slip through your fingers like a real fly kite. Why you want to turn a good day into fight night? The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Jasmine J. Walker, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, how to do it award season? You know, it had some recognition in award circles uh, with nine nominations. It didn't end up winning anything. Um, the first one that caught my eye, strangely, was at the Alma Awards, which is the American Latino Media Arts Award. Nomination for uh, Rita Moreno for Outstanding Actress in a Feature Film in a Crossover Role. I'm not actually sure what that means. I think a role that doesn't necessarily need to be uh, a Latino but is, I'm guessing, because when you look at the list, like Jennifer Lopez is the one who won for Out of Sight. Huh. Um, at Con, the film, uh, Tamara Jenkins and her film were nominated for the Golden Camera, which is, of course, best first feature film, uh, but lost to Mark Levin's Slam, which I haven't seen. Me neither. At the Film Independent Spirit Awards, it was nominated for best first feature, but lost to The Opposite of Sex. And at the Teen Choice Awards, the film was nominated for Best Film Breakout Performance by Natasha Leone, but lost to James Vanderbeek in Varsity Blues, and Best uh, Film Funniest Scene for Dancing with a Vibrator, but lost to There's Something About Mary when Pat sedates, then resuscitates Mary's dog. How did it do at the box office? Did it make any money at all? (laughs) 
Well, Jenkins had a decent first film budget for her period comedy, $5 million or $7.85 million in today's dollars. I guess I would assume that some of that uh, size for an indie first feature came because it did go through the Sundance Institute. This movie opened August 14th, 1998, opposite How Stella Got Her Groove Back, The Avengers, Airbud Golden Receiver, Return to Paradise, and Behind the Lines. This only opened on seven screens and landed in 20th place, but with so few screens, it ended up having the highest per screen average that week. The movie went on to earn $5.5 million at the domestic box office, or $8.6 million in today's dollars, and it doesn't look like any of its international box office info information has been recorded, so we just have to go with that. Still, it does land the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $8,674. I would like to see, actually, the APPFM comparison chart between 1998's The Avengers and The Avengers. <laughs> 2012's The Avengers. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's what I would like to see. Do you really, though? <laughs> you know. <laughs> All right, maybe not. I think I already know the answer. It's yeah. okay. Uh, yeah. Hey, uh, this, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm thrilled this was on here. It didn't even need an exclamation point in the title uh, to, to show me that it was a, a fun yet heartwarming look at coming of age <laughs> considering i was so baited by salam bombay um yeah I'm, I'm really not just leaning in on the joke but i will say this in terms of marketing the movie i i opened the line that i opened was the the stuff on the poster and the poster of the movie was the sort of andy warhol version of her face the posterized version of of natasha's face and it it set up Maybe, according to Tamara Jenkins, she said it's the marketing was, she said, terrible. It set up a movie that this movie was not. And uh, I thought it was really funny when Natasha said, you know, imagine being 18 and wandering, wandering around Los Angeles and seeing your face all over the city and having it just say that you're terrified of breasts, like over and over and over again. She said that was that was jarring. And uh, I thought that was a, a funny bit. Um, so uh, I do think the movie was interesting that it does like th there was no uh, the treatment of the breasts. It always felt like a thriller shot, like a, a suspense thriller. Like it was always like we're going to oh, there's like nudity. They're getting out of the shower or something. And then boom, breasts fill the screen. <laughs> You know, it's like like you just got jumped by by you know a, a threat or something just jumped out of the out of behind the door or something. I thought it was it was fun. Well, they Scary. do they do shoot the breasts in just they're always cut off from the person, and yes. I, I felt felt like that was very um, you know specifically done by Jenkins to just to take the sexuality out of it and just yeah. say boom boobs. Like, I mean, the first time we see yeah. it is when Marissa Tomei flashes the truck driver yeah. and it just cuts. And I was like, oh, God, yeah. I wasn't expecting that slap in the face. Right. I, just, I mean, yeah, it really. I mean, in yeah. filmmaking terms, would you call that a two shot? <laughs> Sometimes you got to uh, let the joke just sit there just, for just, just a second. Yeah. Well, just a second. <laughs> Well, we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here is the trailer for next week's movie, Lynn Ramsey's Ratcatcher. 
Okay, Andy, it's time for Letterboxd. Letterboxd, here we are. It's time for me to acknowledge on Letterboxd that I've actually seen this movie. Had you seen it before or was this your first time? I had seen it before, but my memory of it was such that I effectively hadn't seen it before. <laughs> Does that make sense? There were sequences that stuck out, stuck out to me that I, I remember seeing. But I think when I saw it, it was probably like there was enough cultural stuff like, uh, uh, you know, boobs and periods and and like, oh, girls and boys that I was I was probably like, eh. You know, I, I was a little standoffish to the movie. Well, I'll tell you, it's entirely possible this was when we were roommates, and it's entirely possible that we saw this together. But I would that almost guarantee that opening weekend we unfortunately saw the Avengers. Yeah, that's that. <laughs> maybe that's why. Maybe that's why. Uh, uh, um, okay. So, what are you gonna what are you gonna do for this movie? The characters in this film, just everything feels like so heartwarming, so authentic, so real. It's just a strong, strong film. Um, you know, it's I, I. There are a few little things here and there. I, I feel like I'm gonna settle on four stars very comfortably. Um, you know, it could go up, but I feel like four is totally okay. Four stars and heart. I don't even necessarily feel like it's gonna really go up for me. I. I think I'm I'm going to land in the same place um, because I just like the way the movie stares head on at things that um, that are hard for a lot of folks to to look at and that are hard, even harder for a lot of folks to go through. And uh, I I love that sort of transparency of the movie. And so I'm going to I'm going to go with uh, four stars uh, and a nice, healthy, beating heart. Excellent. Four stars. Yeah, I feel good about All that. Right. So what did you think about Slums of Beverly Hills? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community. We will be talking about this movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andy. As Letterboxd always doeth. I feel like there are a couple of things after reading through some Letterboxd reviews that we didn't mention, that we didn't talk about, that maybe we get to to talk about by way of reviews. Is that fair? Oh, sure. All right. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Do you want to go first? Who talks um, first? I'll go first because it sounds like you've got more to talk about. But mine is just a point we already brought up. By Josh Kaddish, uh, four stars, who says, why does so much time have to pass between Tamara Jenkins' movies? Oh, well, that is right. I'm right there with you, Josh. Yeah. Let's get more uh, Jenkins out there for the world to enjoy. Yeah. I have a five star comes from Marna Larson, who says, reminds me of being 14 so hard, it's scary. Even the clothes. I was going through a big retro phase that year. I love Natasha Leone so much. Might have to give Tamara Jenkins' other movie, Savages, a revisit, as I remember really liking it. The lecture part is below if you want to stop reading here. I'm not super crazy about everyone giving her dad a free pass to be a creep because his brother shamed him over money in front of his kids. 
So groping his niece because he's maudlin over being old is fine. So much gross behavior is excused for this, as though women don't suddenly get called ma'am by everyone and are treated as though invisible at much younger age. But I'm less I'm a bit less uncomfortable here simply because for once it's not a man dictating that a free pass should be given. And the funk vibrator dance scene, how do I always manage to forget? It's classic. So that's one point is we didn't bring up the um Arkin getting uh fresh uh bit. Well, we did, we just didn't talk about it at length. Yeah, we didn't talk about it at length. And and the other one is the the age difference um you know between Elliot and um and Vivian. Vivian and and in Sally Jane Black's review uh which is a much longer review we're not going to I'm not going to read the whole thing but the first paragraph uh, she says, the truth is a lot of teenagers have their first sexual experiences with people too old for them. A lot of teenagers grow up okay with this. A lot of teenagers feel grateful for it even, or had a meaningful emotional connection doing it. And the truth is, it is still dangerous and the adults doing it should be condemned. And then goes on and talks about the distorted views of sex and the behavior and all of that. And we did not talk about the fact that Vivian lost her virginity in the backseat of a car with a guy who was, um, I don't know, how old, how much older do you think they were? Five years, maybe? He was 22, 23, 24, somewhere in there, maybe five, six, seven. He's probably depicting someone about that age, probably five years older. Yeah. Um, in reality, he's 10 years older than Natasha Lyonne. Yeah, yeah. But in, in film age, um, you know, the story they're telling is five years age difference. And, and, you know, he even mentions, you know, this is, this is illegal. Um, and uh, the film, you know, it, I, I don't think the film is necessarily hand wavy about it. Um, you know, I, I think it is. But it's treated much more from her perspective uh, to me being something that was important for her, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Do you care? Yeah. Do you have an opinion? Or is that it? Uh, Did I just say no, your I mean, opinion and you're done? Yeah, that was good. I'm glad you <laughs> brought that up. Uh, <laughs> Definitely a point to also discuss and think about with this film. Thanks, right. Sally. Thanks, Sally. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.